Well, we've seen over the last two weeks that we were dead in trespasses and sins. That was the subject of our message two weeks ago. And last week we saw that God made us alive. And that's called regeneration, or that's called the new birth. And so we saw that though we were dead in trespasses and sins, God acted all by Himself to make us alive together with Christ. That's been the subject of our uh, last two weeks. So this morning, when we come to verses 8 and 10, we see faith and we see good works. And so we should be trying to think through what is the relationship of faith to regeneration? What is the relationship of good works to regeneration? What is the relationship of faith to salvation? We see the word saved in this passage. What is the relationship of good works to salvation? What is the relationship of regeneration to good works? And so on and so forth. These should be questions that are in our mind as we're thinking through this passage and and studying this passage. We see that faith is uh, part of the Christian life. Good works are part of the Christian life. Regeneration is part of the Christian life. What is the relationship of these doctrines to one another? Understanding the relationship of these doctrines to one another is a crucial issue. Error on this issue has damned many a soul because nothing less is at stake than true religion versus false religion. If we get the relationship of salvation to faith or salvation to good works wrong, we uh, are actually in false religion and not in true religion. It's not just an issue of minor importance or just a slight misunderstanding, but... Uh, screwing this up is screwing up religion altogether. And so here's my plain and simple opening statement with which I will also close at the end. I'm going to open plainly and simply, then explain thoroughly, and then close plainly and simply again. So here's my plain and simple opening statement with which I will also close at the end. Human beings are saved by sheer grace. By trusting in Jesus Christ alone instead of trusting in the quality of their faith or in the quality of their good works. However, human beings who are truly saved will exercise faith and good works. That's my plain and simple opening and closing statement. Human beings are saved by sheer grace, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, instead of trusting in the quality of their own faith or the quality of their own good works. However, human beings who are truly saved will exercise faith and will do good works. So let's examine that big idea more thoroughly. I want to give you two, two analogies. One is the analogy of uh, a pool table and uh, the, the balls on the table, billiards. There is logical sequence or cause and effect that is at work uh, between these doctrines. One. Uh, causes the other, and so on and so forth, logically speaking, the way that balls bumping into each other on a pool table cause movement in one another. There is logical causality between these doctrines as we think about regeneration and conversion and faith and justification and so on and so forth. There's causality and there's logical sequence and so on and so forth. That's the first analogy that I want to give you. But the second analogy that I want to give you is the analogy of a diamond where multiple facets are distinguishable from one another, but inseparable from one another, because they all belong 
to the same diamond. And so regeneration and conversion and faith and justification and good works are all aspects, facets of a diamond which can't actually be entirely separated from one another even though they are distinguishable from one another. So we do want to distinguish and we do want to look at logical sequence and logical causality uh, but we don't want to utterly pull these things apart as if you can have regeneration without faith or regeneration without good works or faith but not good works and so on and so forth. These all go together. And so let's unpack uh, these doctrines in that order. We're going to look first at logical sequence, cause and effect, and then we're going to look at the inseparability of these doctrines from one another. So first will be the pool table and the balls on the table hitting one another and causing movement in one another. And then secondly, we'll look at the diamond and the inseparability of all of these things. So let's begin with logical sequence. Theologians talk about historia salutis, that's the Latin term, and ordo salutis. And you don't need to know the Latin term, but you do need to understand uh, something of the concept here. Historia salutis is just, in English, history of salvation. The history of salvation. And then ordo salutis refers to the order of salvation. And so, historia salutis, or history of salvation, has to do with what God has done in history to accomplish salvation. And so, uh, that would have to do with, say, for example, the incarnation and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That belongs to a consideration of the history of salvation. Ordo salutis, or order of salvation, uh, is looking at and studying the way that we experience salvation. So, um, it's more the subjective aspect, that we were dead and then we were made alive, and so on and so forth, and how, how it comes to us, and the sequence by which um, salvation comes to us. That's sort of ordo salutis, or order of salvation. So when we want to talk about um, these things, we have to talk about them together. So let's, let's look at an aspect of historia salutis, history of salvation first. Um, in history... Christ satisfied the law's demands. A holy God, a God who is perfect, a God who is without blemish, without uh, any imperfection whatsoever, cannot look upon sin and be ambivalent towards it. A holy God will not, nor can He, by definition of being holy, look on sin and be ambivalent about it. A holy God will punish sin, always. A holy God requires righteousness, always, without exception, without uh, the omission of even a slight degree. A holy God will not accept anything less than perfect and perpetual obedience as a condition of acceptance with Him. And will not, where sin has been committed, will not accept anything less than the full punishment due to that sin being meted out as a condition for reconciliation. God must have the demands of the law answered or satisfied before He could pardon a sinner. And Christ Jesus came to do that. Roughly 2,000 years ago, a little baby was born in Bethlehem. And this baby was God incarnate, come to rescue us from our sin. He grew up and He lived a life of obedience to God's law 
We had sinned. We had broken God's law. But Jesus came to this earth and did not break God's law. Jesus came and lived a perfect and sinless life. And He did that as a substitute for lawbreakers. So that His righteousness could be credited to us. In other words, He came to answer the demand for perfect righteousness on our behalf. Acting as our representative. And then this sinless one who deserved life died on the cross. He who did not deserve to die. He who had no sin of His own had our sins placed upon Him by God to suffer in our place, to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And so He answered the demand of the law for punishment, for justice to be meted out when He died on the cross. And so Jesus has answered all the demands of the law perfectly on our behalf, on behalf of all those who will be saved. So that's Historia Salutis, and we need to be grounded there. We need to be grounded in the objective work of Christ on our behalf as we come to think about Ordo Salutis, the way that we experience salvation. God requires faith in order to be saved. God requires faith from us in order to be saved. But having just said that Christ has answered the law's demands on our behalf, it's really important to note that God's requirement of faith from us is not a legal requirement. God does not require faith from us as part of satisfying His legal demands. As if Jesus has done 99% and we just have to do this 1%. That we just have to contribute to our salvation in this one little way. Or Jesus died for every sin except the sin of unbelief. And we just have to make sure that we don't exercise unbelief. Jesus died for all the sins of everybody who will ever be saved. Including their sins of unbelief. And Jesus' faith, and not our faith, is the meritorious basis of our salvation. Our faith is not actually merit in God's eyes. And that's really, really crucial. Really, really important uh, to understand. Uh, Otherwise, we end up trusting in our own works instead of in Christ's works for our salvation. We turn faith into a work and then trust in our work in order to be justified. Faith is not a legal requirement for justification. But it is a requirement. God has said that uh, we need to believe in Him in order to be justified. You see that all through Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Belief, faith, is uh, required of human beings in order to be justified in God's sight. But what we see when we understand that Christ has answered the demands of the law on our behalf is that faith is necessary to God's honor and not God's justice. That God, if Christ has truly answered all the demands of the law on my behalf, for example, if Christ has literally fulfilled righteousness perfectly for me, 
and Christ has died for every one of my sins, then that would include my unbelief. And that means that Christ's uh, righteousness and not my own faith is the merit of righteousness by which I am saved. And Christ's death on the cross uh, is a sufficient answer for my unbelief, which means that faith, my faith is not a meritorious grounding of my justification before God. It's not legally required in order for God to justify me. God could legally, He could be holy in justifying me in the absence of faith because Christ has answered all the demands of the law for His people. However, God has set it up so that He will not justify apart from faith. And this is because of His honor. God does all things to display His glory. If God justified uh, people based on Christ's righteousness without ever bringing them to faith, without ever uh, causing them to have eyes to see, without ever requiring that they realize that they need mercy, and without ever calling out to Him uh, for mercy, then He would not receive the glory that He is due. That we would be, as it were, spitting in His face. It would be like people receiving a gift that they don't appreciate. A gift that they don't care about. A gift that they don't, perhaps even are oblivious to receive. The way that if we gave a gift uh, to a, a little baby, they wouldn't know that they received the gift. And so, so we might bestow millions of dollars on a little baby, but they don't know what millions of dollars is. And so, so they don't care. So faith, God requires faith from us uh, in order that we might see His glory, that we might appreciate His glory, that we might um, respond uh, to His grace in a way that shows His glory, in a way that displays His glory. So God does absolutely require faith in order to be saved, but it's not a legal condition of our salvation. Christ's righteousness and Christ's death on the cross it, it has satisfied all the legal conditions for all who will ever be saved. So God requires faith in order to be saved. But here's the problem, and this is what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Dead humans will never come. Spiritually dead humans will never come to faith, will never come to trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There's much talk in the church at large about free will. Free will. I'm going to read a couple things from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, um, the first of which may surprise you. From chapter 9 and paragraph 1, God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced, that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. And that comes in the chapter uh, of the 1689 Confession entitled, Of Free Will. So the, the, even this Reformed Confession agrees that God endued humans with free will. However, the confession goes on to say 
uh, in chapter 9 and paragraph 3, man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. What that, what that means in plain English is that when Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden, they had free will in the sense that many conceive of it today. In other words, that they weren't in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, forced uh, by, either by an external factor nor by any necessity of nature to do good or evil. It, they wouldn't, it wasn't necessary that they would do evil, nor was it necessary that they would do good, but in that sense, they had free will. But man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. And so what, what we come to understand is that the fall, Adam's fall into sin, has made mankind dead in trespasses and sins. And that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, we're not going to belabor the point this morning. Um, but it's just important to note that if God requires faith in order to be justified, but people have become dead in their trespasses and sins through Adam, then they will never exercise that faith which is required in order to be justified. They will never place faith in Christ Jesus. The spiritually dead person sees no sweetness in Christ, sees no need to be saved, sees no uh, sufficiency in Christ to be a Savior, and so on and so forth. Listen to this quote. Seeing all men are by nature not only sick, but dead in trespasses and sins, it is not possible for them to do anything well till God raises them from the dead. It was impossible for Lazarus to come forth till the Lord had given him life. And it is equally impossible for us to come out of our sins, yea, or to make the least motion toward it, till he who hath all power in heaven and on earth calls our dead souls into life. You know who said that? John Wesley, the Arminian. This is not, this is not a Calvinist thing. This is not an Arminian thing. This is a biblical thing. This is what the Bible teaches. And Calvinists and Arminians throughout history who have been Bible men have seen at least this fundamental truth. God must act first before spiritually dead people will have any signs of life in them. Including the exercise of faith toward God and repentance toward Him. And so what we see then is that regeneration precedes conversion. Regeneration, what we talked about last week, this making alive precedes conversion. <clears throat> now, regeneration and conversion are two distinct things. Again, not inseparable, but distinct things, right? And so we want to, we're still on the pool ball analogy. One thing bumping into the next, and causality and logical sequence. So eventually we're going to get to the section about the diamond. We're going to see that you don't have regeneration without conversion or vice versa. But for now, Let's distinguish between regeneration and conversion and see the logical causality. <clears throat> regeneration is that act of making alive where God renews a person's 
nature, where God gives life in place of spiritual death. This is what we unpacked at length last week. And so if you missed it, you can listen to the sermon online and and hear more in depth about this being made alive. But it is uh, spiritual resurrection, as it were. It's going from spiritual deadness, uh, which we talked about two weeks ago, to the opposite of spiritual deadness. And seeing the inverse of all the symptoms of spiritual deadness at work within us. The opposite of all the symptoms of spiritual deadness uh, begin to characterize our life. Uh, No longer walking in trespasses and sins, but walking in holiness. No longer following the course of this world, but making it our aim to please God. No longer following the prince of the power of the air, but following the king of kings. No longer following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, but following the Holy Spirit. No longer carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, but nevertheless not what I will, but what you will be done. These are signs of spiritual life. And God makes a person spiritually alive all by himself. Or theologians say monergistically, all by himself. God does that. That's regeneration, being born again, being made alive. These terms are synonymous in Scripture. We respond to being made alive with faith toward God and repentance, which issues from that faith. In other words, uh, when we were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, living in the passions of the flesh, We didn't exercise faith toward God. We didn't have a taste for the things of God. As Jesus says in John chapter 3, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We didn't see Christ in His glory. We didn't see the kingdom of God and its worth. And so we didn't put faith in Christ Jesus. But having been born again, we see the kingdom of God and its worth. We see that it is like a treasure hidden in a field, which in his joy a man went and sold all that he had to buy that field. We see that the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price, which again a man uh, is willing to pay great sums for to get in this kingdom of heaven. We see the kingdom of heaven and its worth. And When we're born again, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when God regenerates us, we see Christ Jesus in His glory. We see Christ Jesus in His splendor. And we respond in faith. We believe who He is. We believe what the Bible says we are in relationship to Him. We believe that Christ Jesus is the only sufficient Savior who can reconcile us to God, who can make us right with Him. And we respond uh, with repentance that issues from that faith. Repentance is turning away from sin and toward Christ. And it, it flows from that saving faith that as we have our eyes opened, as we have our, uh, the affections of our hearts changed, as we become qualitatively different, because of God's monergistic work, that is His work all by Himself for us, we respond in a certain way. And that's called conversion. So, regeneration is what God does all by Himself, monergistically. Conversion happens synergistically. 
we cooperate with God's Holy Spirit in conversion. That we exercise faith and we exercise repentance in response to and by the help of the Holy Spirit's work in us. And so what we see is that regeneration, this work of being made alive, needs to proceed, or pardon me, precede this work of conversion, which involves our participation. We're not going to exercise faith. We're not going to turn away from our sin until God comes and makes us alive together with Christ. And so there's a logical causality between regeneration and conversion. Regeneration has to precede conversion. And with this distinction in mind uh, between monergism and synergism, uh, that is God acting all by himself or uh, God and us acting in cooperation, we need to define and qualify what we mean when we say or what people mean when they say faith is a gift. You hear people say faith is a gift. And it's correct, but it needs to be understood properly and it needs to be qualified. Uh, in Acts uh, chapter 18 and verse 27, we read this. And when he wished to cross to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. That last little clause, it just slips in there. In a historical narrative, but it just slips in there. But do you catch that? Those who through grace had believed. You see that, that there was a gift of grace which enabled them to believe. Right? Without that grace they would not have believed. And so faith is a gift. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. It is, in other words, and to... to to exclude the irrelevant section of this verse and focus on the relevant section. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should believe in Him. Right? This is the idea of legal union with Christ, which goes all the way back to eternity, where God chose people to be saved and appointed Christ as their representative. In space and time, it has been granted to each of those people for the sake of Christ that they should believe in Him. Right? And so uh, we do see that faith is a gift, that God acts in us uh, to cause us to believe. And uh, so in that sense, faith is a gift. But it's important to recognize that it is we who believe, not God. That's what John Owen says. That's a quote. It is we who believe, not God. And so what we, what we have to understand is that regeneration is monergistic, but conversion is synergistic. The response of faith and repentance, with no, which no one can make with a spiritually dead heart, uh, uh, is a synergistic work. And so, if people are spiritually dead, they can't do their part of exercising faith. Right? But when God makes alive and renews our nature, gives us spiritual life, 
then we can actually respond to the Holy Spirit's work in us uh, and by His help, by responding with faith toward Christ. And we see that regeneration not only makes it possible for people to respond with faith, but regeneration causes people to respond in faith. As I said, in 2 Corinthians 4, we read that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But when God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines in our hearts, we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is uh, impossible, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, for those who have not been born again, even to see the kingdom of heaven. But when we are born again, we see. And so it's, it's impossible for those who really behold Christ in His glory and for those who really behold the inestimable worth of living in His kingdom, the hope that He offers us in the gospel, it is impossible for those who really grasp that not to believe. And so as Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And so it is just as sure, uh, in fact, uh, more sure because perhaps there are uh, certain things that would happen in the realm of physics which would be unpredictable uh, to our naked eye, but it is as sure or more sure than a professional uh, pool player who lines up a shot just right and hits a certain ball just so with the cue ball perfectly just the way he should that the ball which is hit will go straight to the pocket. It is just as sure, or more sure, that God, uh, when He works in a person, giving them the new birth, hits them, so to speak, that they will respond in just the way that He intends for them to respond, straight into the pocket. That we are going to believe, we are going to see, when God works His wonderful work of regeneration, His wonderful work of giving us the new birth, when He opens our eyes to see, we will believe. We will fall on our faces and cry out, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As the, the uh, sinner did in Luke chapter 18 uh, when he went to pray. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the response of the regenerate heart to the gospel. And so those who are regenerate will respond in faith. And then those who have genuine faith in Christ uh, will also have good works. Luther, the great reformer, said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so, again, what you see is that where, where true faith exists, so does good works. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, and so what you see is that as James chapter 2 says, um, uh, or James chapter 2 teaches us, I'm, I'm not going to quote it, but I'm going to paraphrase it. You don't have genuine saving faith unless you have corresponding good works. The faith that saves is a faith that sees rightly who God is, that sees rightly who we are, that sees rightly the nature of the gospel and our need of Christ Jesus in order to reconcile us to Himself. Um, that faith is also a faith that sees the heinousness of sin, that sees the beauty and glory of God uh, in juxtaposition to the disgusting and, and putrid and deadly nature of sin. It's a, it's a faith that 
perceives the path of sin as being the path of death and perceives the path of holiness as being the path of life. It's a faith that comprehends uh, or at least apprehends these things. And so a faith that uh, uh, is genuine saving faith is also a faith that results in repentance. Uh, A faith that sees the sweetness of Christ also sees the bitterness of sin. A faith that sees life in Christ and trusts in Him no longer, by definition, trusts in sin and looks to sin to satisfy, and so on and so forth. Uh, Just as Jesus taught us, uh, a a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, neither can a good tree bear bad fruit. But a bad tree brings forth bad fruit, and a good tree brings forth good fruit. And so, uh, when God regenerates us, Uh, What comes forth is not only faith, but is also good works in response uh, to what God has done. God is saving us from sin's power as well as sin's penalty. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, we read that Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, Christ Jesus, one intent of His work for us was not only to save us from sin's penalty, but also to save us from sin's power. And so, um, those who have saving faith will also have good works. Which brings us, we're, we're, we're segueing already into the inseparability. So now we're, we're shifting from looking at logical causality to looking at the inseparability of these things, like facets of a diamond. Romans eight twenty nine. And 30 is what some theologians have called the golden chain. And what we see, what we read there is this. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Romans 8, 29 and 30. What we see is that you can't be predestined without being called. You can't be justified without being glorified. You can't be justified without being predestined. And so on and so forth. The way that the Bible talks about salvation is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has chosen to save a particular people. And God will save those particular people. Fully, thoroughly, totally, completely. He's not going to give them part of salvation. He's going to give them the whole thing. People are not going to be partially redeemed, partially saved. People are not going to be brought halfway along and then just dropped. People are not going to be brought out of Egypt in order to die in the wilderness. God's going to take them all the way into the promised land. We see in the scriptures that our triune God has made a commitment to the full and total and complete salvation of His people. So... You can't uh, talk about uh, regeneration without also talking about conversion. You can't talk about conversion without talking about justification. You can't talk about justification, which is being reconciled to God, being counted as righteous in God's sight and reconciled to God uh, through the imputation of Christ's righteousness alone. You can't talk about that without also talking about sanctification, which is being changed by God, being progressively, uh, not only definitively set apart, as He does immediately when He saves us, He sets us apart for His own holy use. That's definitive sanctification. 
but also there's progressive sanctification, which is actually making us more and more obedient to Him. You can't talk about justification without talking about sanctification. You can't talk about definitive sanctification without also talking about progressive sanctification. And you can't talk about sanctification without talking about glorification, which is the completion of all of these things. It's the full flower of which regeneration is the seed. You can't talk about any of these one things without talking about all of them together. And so some have objected to even talking about an ordo salutis on those grounds because people see it as just dissecting too much and, and uh, uh, separating things from one another that don't, ought not to be separated. But it's helpful for us in just understanding what God does for us in our salvation and where our responsibility lies, uh, I think, to dissect these things in an ordo salutis. The way that uh, students might dissect a frog, all the parts of the frog belong together. Right? Nobody's, nobody's trying to say that you know, frog muscles can do things all by themselves or that frog nerves do things all by themselves. We understand that a frog is an integrated whole. And yet we dissect it in order to understand the exact nature, the precise nature of the various parts. And that's what we're trying to do with, in studying the Ordo Salutis and looking at regener- di- distinguishing between regeneration and conversion and the legal grounds for our acceptance with God and, and so on and so forth and the relationship of these things to one another. It's not to uh, communicate that these things don't belong together. Or it's not to communicate that you can have some of these things without having all of these things. It's simply to try to understand better the salvation that God works for us. But we need to see that all of these things do come together as a package to those who are being saved. Um, As Sinclair Ferguson said in an excellent book, um, probably, I haven't read nor even read a list of all the books published last year Uh, I believe it was last year that it was published or this year last year I think it was published but Sinclair Ferguson's book The Whole Christ is probably the best book published in the year in which it was published I'm going to say that as conjecture I can't obviously state that for a fact but it is it's one of those books uh, that comes along every now and then, which you suspect people will probably still be reading in a couple hundred years. It's an excellent, excellent book. But he talks about how you have to receive the whole Christ. And you don't receive a partial Christ in your salvation. And so he's dealing with issues of legalism and antinomianism uh, in that book. Uh, you talk about, you hear people talk about receiving Christ Jesus as Savior, but not receiving him as Lord. That's nonsense. You receive the whole Christ. And Christ Jesus is Savior and Christ Jesus is Lord. And so we receive the whole Christ. And this is why we can't talk about justification without talking about sanctification. We receive Christ the King as well as Christ the Priest. And so on and so forth. We receive Christ in all His mediatorial offices, in all of His fullness, with all of His titles, with all of His excellency, in all of His beauty, in all of His glory, or we don't receive Him at all. Faith receive perceives and receives the whole Christ that is the nature of genuine saving faith and so all of these things belong together God is saving us from sin's penalty and sin's power and when he returns and makes all things new we will no longer even be in a sinful environment anymore that he is redeeming us 
from the totality of sin and its effects. So all of these things, uh, though they're distinguishable, they're not inseparable. And though there's a logical sequence and a logical causality, uh, there's not even always a temporal sequence and a temporal causality in the sense that our regeneration and our conversion happen at the same time. It's not that one happens, you know, a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple minutes before the other. It's like, I was blind, but now I see. And at that moment, we behold Christ and put our faith in Him and so on and so forth. So when we talk about logical sequence and logical causality, we're not necessarily talking about temporal sequence and temporal causality, and nor are we saying that you can have one without the other. We're just simply trying to dissect and understand the nature of this salvation that God works for us. And so, human beings are saved by sheer grace, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, instead of trusting in the quality of their own faith or the quality of their own good works. However, human beings who are truly saved will exercise faith and will do good works. And so what we see is that regeneration, union with Christ, uh, in the Historia Salutis, in the history of salvation, union with Christ, there is a union with Christ that uh, happened in eternity past where God, the Father, gave to God the Son a particular people. In space and time, Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose for those people, ascended to heaven where He and the Father sent forth the Holy Spirit to apply that salvation to His people. Uh, This is the history of salvation. The order of salvation in terms of how it's experienced by us. The first thing that happens is regeneration. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive. Then we respond uh, uh, to the Holy Spirit's work in us with the help of the Holy Spirit's work in us um, to the offer of the gospel with faith and the repentance that issues from it. And uh, so what we see, and coming back to the text that we read this morning, which is the basis of our message today, for by grace you have have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why we can say that Uh, We are His workmanship, even in terms of our faith and our good works. Even though it's we who do them, this is how we can say that we are His workmanship. Because He was the one who worked in us to make us alive in the first place and to even give us the capacity to do those things. And it's Him on an ongoing basis uh, who works in us, as Philippians 2 says, to will and to act according to His good pleasure. And so from, from start to finish, we see that we have a gracious salvation even where faith is solicited of us, even where repentance and effort are solicited of us, we see that at the root, at the bottom of it, at the base of it, we are His workmanship. So some applications of this doctrine. First is that all the glory should go to God. When we see somebody uh, living uh, by faith, walking by faith, living a faithful Christian life, We shouldn't be like, wow, what a great person that is. But we should be like, wow, look at what God has done in this person's life. He's brought them uh, from death to life. And he's, He's won them and wooed them by His Holy Spirit to faith. When we see somebody living righteously in obedience to God's commands, we shouldn't 
again, be like, wow, look at how great that person is. Look at how amazing that person is. You should say, wow, look how effective God's grace has been in that person's life. That he has brought this man from death to life. That he has brought this woman from death to life. And he is working in her to free her from sin's power as well as from sin's penalty. He or she is God's workmanship. So all the glory, we got to keep giving all the glory to God all the way along. We've got to see that all of this stems from grace and even the things that we do, the things, the actions which are truly and properly ours, such as faith and such as repentance, such as obedience, even the things which are truly and properly ours stem from a regenerate heart which was given by God. And so as Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? And so let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so we give all glory to God. Uh, But here are a couple of other applications, uh, which both apply to sanctification, which is, and when I say sanctification in this context, I'm talking about progressive sanctification. That's what, by which we become increasingly holy, increasingly obedient. These applications are both for sanctification as well as for evangelism. Uh, Firstly, is we need to guard against legalism, which stems from neo-nomianism. And let me explain those terms. Legalism, in the context in which I'm using it here, is trusting in our own works as if our own works are merit in God's eyes. Trusting, Trusting in our own works as if they're meritorious in God's eyes, as if we earn something by them. And legalism stems from neonomianism, which is new law. Nomos is the, the word for law. So neonomianism is new law. J. Gresham Machen, who was a Presbyterian earlier in the 20th century, a great contender for Christian orthodoxy, says that legalism stems not from a high view of the law, but from a low view of the law. Think about it. If we saw the rigor of God's law, just how perfect God requires our obedience to be, just how hopeless uh, we are in receiving justification by imperfect obedience, just how holy and pure God's law is, how rigorous it is, and how unyielding God's law is, that a holy God will not pardon even the slightest infraction of His law. That's a high view of God's law. That wouldn't lead us to be like, oh, okay, well, let's try to get salvation by works. That would drive us to grace, as, as Jake Gresham Manchin says. But legalism stems from a low view of God's law. And that when we actually think God's law is doable, then we're like, okay, well, let's do it and receive salvation thereby. Neonomianism is an idea that has uh, crept into the church at various periods of time. And I would argue that it's actually rampant in evangelicalism now. I would say it's one of the most significant gospel misunderstandings within evangelicalism in the West in the 21st century. Neonomianism is the idea that in the Old Testament, God's law was rigorous. And God was holy and unyielding. And even the slightest infraction against God's holiness, even the slightest sin, incurred condemnation and damnation. But in the New Testament... Right, And you see where I'm going with this. This is what you hear all the time. But in the New Testament, God is full of grace. God is full of mercy. 
He used to require perfect and perpetual obedience to his law, but now what he requires, which is the language of the law, right? But now what he requires is simply faith and sincerity. And if you have faith in Jesus, and if you have sincerity, you will be forgiven, right? Now, it is true that what he requires of us is faith. And it is true that if we don't have faith, we won't be justified. And if we do have faith in Christ, we will be justified. But here's where the difference comes. We don't have faith in our faith. That's, that won't save us. That will send us straight to hell. If you're trusting in the quality of your faith to save you, as if it's meritorious, as if you're bringing your faith in God's hands and saying, look, God, I have faith, therefore I've earned salvation. Right? I'm a better person than the people around me because I have faith. Like this, this mentality, if you bring faith in your hands to God as if it was a work of the law, you're just as lost as someone trusting in their obedience to the Ten Commandments. Right? Uh, the gospel is not that God used to be holy and that God used to receive, uh, or God used to require only perfect and perpetual obedience, but now He's gracious and He's lowered His standards so that we can meet it. And now all we have to do is have faith. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God is holy from the beginning of time to the end of time. From Genesis to Revelation, God is holy. God's law is perfect, and God requires perfect and perpetual obedience to it in order to be justified. And the gospel is that though we couldn't offer that, though we haven't offered that, um, nor could we, Jesus Christ has come to offer perfect and perpetual obedience on our behalf. And so we need to have faith in the perfect law keeper. And when we put our faith in the perfect law keeper, God gives us the gracious gift of salvation that Jesus earned for us. And so you see that faith isn't meritorious. Faith is like a pipe uh, by which we drink water for our thirsty souls. Faith is like a bucket by which we draw water from the well of salvation. Faith is uh, like the empty hand that takes hold of Christ. Faith is just an instrument. Faith isn't a meritorious thing. Faith is just an instrument. And uh, so we don't put our faith in our faith. We put our faith in Christ. And there's a big difference there. So we don't see faith as God's new law. We see faith as an instrument by which we receive Christ's perfect law keeping. And so, so legalism is a danger to us. And it stems from neo-nomianism. I think that's at the root of our legalism. Anytime we start to think about a new, easier law in the New Testament, we're straying into neo-nomianism. And that uh, has a tendency to lead us towards legalism, trying to um, try to meet this newer, easier law as a basis of being made right with God. So that's a danger to us. That's applicable to us in our sanctification uh, as well as in our evangelism. It's applicable to us in our sanctification uh, in the sense that as we go, we shouldn't be uh, simply trying to work out more faith and work out more faith as, as a way of justifying ourselves in God's sight and despairing. Oh no, I don't have enough faith. You know, maybe I'm going to be lost and so on and so forth. We need to pursue sanctification with gospel motives. That this kind of, uh, just as knowing what we should do doesn't actually lead us to do what we should do. Knowing God's law doesn't actually lead us to keep it. So knowing that we ought to have faith doesn't actually awaken more faith in us. And so what we need to do is 
not look inside ourselves for more faith as we pursue sanctification, but continually be looking to Christ in, in trust and in obedience and so on and so forth. Shifting our focus away from uh, trying to work something up in ourselves towards uh, uh, um, shifting our focus towards Christ and, and perceiving His glory, perceiving His greatness, trying to have uh, our affections uh, stirred up for Him and looking at Christ actually gives us greater faith instead of looking inside of ourselves. Like, the more that you perceive the strength of uh, somebody that you need to be strong, the more faith you're going to have in them. So keep looking at Christ and you're going to actually find that you have more faith. Um, so so sanct- in sanctification, it's helpful to us in that respect. It's helpful to us in our evangelism and that we don't preach the gospel wrongly. And we don't go to people and say, yeah, like I have great news for you. There's an easier law now. Right? You know, remember the Ten Commandments? We don't have to do those things anymore. All we have to do now is just believe. Right? We don't evangelize like this. We don't, we don't communicate the gospel in incorrect and inadequate terms. We don't, we don't tell people, you know, Jesus has done 99%. He's made it possible. He's put it within reach. Now all you have to do is have faith. We don't evangelize like that. That's the wrong way to evangelize because that's actually not the gospel. What we, what we do is we talk to people about God's holiness. We talk to people about sin, our inability uh, to meet God's law. And we talk to people about how Jesus has kept God's law for all who will trust in Him. And then we urge people to have faith in Jesus. That's good evangelism. So we need to steer clear of neonomianism and legalism in the way that we articulate the gospel to the people around us. Uh, we want to stay very clear from making faith a work that they need to do in order to be saved. And we want to um, urge them to have faith in Christ's work for them. Right? It's a subtle difference, but it's a really important difference. And again, nothing, is a, nothing less is at stake than true religion versus false religions. This is a big, big issue. Uh, a second application of these things is against hyper-Calvinism, um, which... Uh, uh, is related to antinomianism. Those two things often go hand in hand. Um, what, what we believe, some people call Calvinism. We don't believe certain things because John Calvin taught things. We believe things because they're in the Bible. We don't exposit Calvin's institutes. Week by week we exposit the Bible and we see certain things in the Bible and we believe those things and a uh, nickname that has been given in church history to these things is Calvinism. So in that sense, we're Calvinists. But um, what has been nicknamed hyper-Calvinism, we're not. Hyper-Calvinism uh, could be described in many ways, but one way to describe it is such an emphasis on God's action that we are we underemphasize human action um, beyond what is warranted by Scripture. So in other words, we excuse ourselves for not doing what we should because we're talking about so much about what God does do. Right? And that, that's one aspect of hyper-Calvinism that we want to stay away from in this respect. Again, we need to recognize regeneration is monergistic. God gives us the new birth all by Himself without our help, without our cooperation. Conversion is synergistic. We respond to the preaching of the gospel with faith and we uh, uh, repent of our sins and we live a life 
of ongoing faith and repentance. That is something that we do, and that is something that we are responsible to do. We do it in response to the work of God's Holy Spirit in us, and by the help of God's Holy Spirit working in us. It's not us by ourselves either. It's not monergistic in the sense that we do it all by ourselves. It's synergistic though, in that, in that we do it in response to God and with His help, but we do it. We have a part to play, as John Owen said, and again, I quote, it is we that believe, not God. And so, uh, sometimes people want to so emphasize, it's all of grace, it's sheer grace. You, you don't have to do anything, you, you can't do anything, you're helpless unless God works in you, so on and so forth. And in certain contexts, like when we speak about justification, when we speak about regeneration, yes, these things are true. We don't contribute anything whatsoever to regeneration. We don't contribute anything whatsoever to justification. But in sanctification, we actually have to put forward effort. And even in conversion, we have to respond to the preaching of the gospel with faith. And so we have two application, or a twofold application of this idea, both for our sanctification and for our evangelism. In sanctification, it means try. Do something. Don't just sit there and be like, well, I'm just dead in my trespasses and sins. And, you know, God has to monergistically work in my life. And, like, no. Like, you, you, A, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you're not even a Christian. So let's, let me talk to you about the gospel, not sanctification. So, A, you're regenerate, which means you're not actually dead in your trespasses and sins anymore. Um, but B, that's not how sanctification works. Uh, over and over in the scriptures, we see the importance of our active effort in sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. Uh, even here we see God has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. Not so that God should walk in them for us, but so that we should walk in them. And so this whole idea of excusing ourselves in sanctification, not making progress in sanctification, well, because we know it's all grace anyway, because we know it's all God. You know, we don't want to be legalists here. This is the way that some people talk about sanctification. So, well, no wonder you're still struggling with your sin. Like, you've got to work at it. You've got to kill sin, man. You've got to put sin to death. We've got to be active and involved in our sanctification. We have to be actually uh, putting forth effort. We actually have to be exercising faith. We actually have to be looking at gospel promises and putting forth effort to believe them. We actually have to be looking at what the Bible says about uh, uh, who God is, what He's done for us in Christ, what He's doing in us by His Holy Spirit, the outcome of our salvation. And we actually have to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to believe that today. And I'm going to work that out in my life in these ways. Boom, boom, boom. This is what is going to look different in my life because of these truths. It's actual effort. Our devotions isn't like, oh Lord, change me. And like we sit here and like just meditate on uh, Scripture in, in an uh, Eastern transcendental meditation sense where we just kind of just sit there and just expect some kind of osmosis or some kind of mystical experience to happen. We meditate on it in the sense of a, a, a cow with multiple stomachs apparently chews things up and, and regurgitates it and then chews it up and puts it in its next stomach and regurgitates. Apparently this is a cow's digestive system. And this is how Christians should do devotions. This is how Christians should read Scripture with mental exertion. 
with mental effort. What does this mean for me? How should my life change? What do I, what do, I do differently now? Let me think about that. Let me think about that again. Let me go back and think about that again. What needs to change? Oh, I just, I just did such and such a thing. Well, that's not consistent with what I read in my devotions this morning. I need to change that. Oh God, today help me to make the right effort to glorify your name. Oh, it says, among you there must not be a, even a hint of sexual immorality. Oh, okay, well maybe I should turn this movie off. Maybe I should get up off the couch and go shut it off. Effort, right? Uh, do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Well, okay, maybe I should not have another cup, right? Whatever, like whatever, whatever it is, there's actual just plain old effort and activity that is involved in the Christian life. And hyper-Calvinism, uh, uh, a hyper-Calvinistic understanding of sanctification would be just passivity until God just releases me of my desires, until God just releases me of my chains, and I just... I just wait, and I'm just waiting, and I'm just perpetually playing the victim. Oh, I'm just, I just in bondage to my sins, and just like pray for me. I need to, I need to be delivered of this. Like, like, and again, I'm not. Obviously, I think you guys know by now. I think you understand. This is, this is actually probably the first time in Ephesians that I've actually really foisted a duty upon you. We've been talking for like eight weeks about God's work for us, God's work for us. I think you know, I'm all about grace. I'm all, uh, the Bible is all about grace. The Bible is all about. We need God. We need His work for us. We need His Holy Spirit. But we also need to, and we begin to see this in Ephesians, and we're getting to the last few chapters where this is in full view. We also need to respond. We actually need to respond actively with effort. And so um, we need to realize that, as John Owen said, it is we that believe, not God. So we actually need to believe the the things that we read in the Bible and not ask God to believe them for us. And by extension, we could, we could change John Owen's quote a little bit and say, it is actually we who do the good works and not God. At the end of chapter, or pardon me, at the end of verse 10, uh, God has prepared good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. These are good works that we need to walk in. It is we who do good works, not God. Right? So we need to understand that Though justification is monergistic, God does that for us all by Himself. Sanctification is synergistic. We cooperate with God's Holy Spirit in sanctification. And so um, that's a really important thing to see in terms of our sanctification. We want to stay away from uh, hyper-Calvinism. And I I said antinomianism often goes hand-in-hand with that. Antinomianism, again, nomos being law, anti-nomos would be anti-law. And the idea, again, would just be a a lackadaisical approach to sanctification, or even a, you know, we're not under the law, we're under grace, kind of like, you hear people say that to excuse their sin, as if somewhere, just this little nugget in Romans is teaching that sin doesn't matter and that holiness is unimportant. That's not what you're under law, under grace means. But you hear people use it in that sense. Like, it's like, oh, well, you need, to, you need to repent of that sin. Oh, brother, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. <laughs> right? Hyper-Calvinism and antinomianism often go, under, often go hand in hand. There's, wherever you see passivity towards uh, holiness, passivity towards righteousness, passivity towards the exercise of faith, 
passivity towards repentance, you're probably going to see some hyper-Calvinism and some antinomianism mixed together in some weird concoction. It's not biblical view of sanctification. Um, so then secondly, uh, that has an application for evangelism as well. That we don't, when we go preach the gospel as Calvinists, we don't go out and say, well, if God has elected you, I know you'll believe sooner or later. <laughs> right? We don't go out and say, we don't go out and say, you know, God, God has regenerated, God needs to regenerate you. You're dead in your trespasses and sins and you can do nothing. God has to regenerate you. And then just like, look at them and let's say, okay. <laughs> but like, where's our evangelism headed? Where's our evangelism going? Like, where's the, where's the, where's the, what's the goal here, right? What we, what we need to do is drive towards urging people to repent and have faith in Christ. What we need to do, there's nothing, there's nothing non-Calvinistic about that. There's nothing, there's nothing that is inconsistent with Calvinism or Reformed theology about urging people to have faith. It's right in the Bible, guys. Right? Again, this is, this is what we call Calvinism is, is really just he systematized it and articulated it in a helpful way and got nicknamed that, but it's really biblical doctrine. You read the same stuff in people prior to Calvin. You read stuff like Calvin said in Augustine in the 4th century. Like you read, this stuff goes all the way back. It's, it's Pauline. Ephesians 1, we, we just preached through that. Romans 9, like it's right there in the Bible. But what you see alongside God's sovereignty alongside monergistic regeneration, alongside uh, monergistic justification. What you see alongside these things is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, and I've quoted this already probably a dozen times in two months, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So when we talk to people about Jesus, we tell them about what Jesus has done. We tell them about God's holiness, about His standard of perfection. He's given us a law. He expects perfect and perpetual obedience to that law. Uh, or He's going to condemn and damn those who have broken His law to hell forever. And then we tell them about Jesus who came and lived a perfect and sinless life. And then we tell them about Jesus who died a sin-bearing, punishment-bearing death on the cross. And how Jesus didn't stay dead, but He rose. And that now the gospel is being preached to all nations. This good news that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. And then we say, friend, so where are you at with this? What do you believe in respect to this? Do you believe what I just told you? What, what difference does that make in your life? Do you, do you believe it in the sense that you believe that there's a planet out there named Venus? Or do you believe it in, in the sense that like, you, you need to eat food or you're going to die and so you eat food. Like, are you, have, you, have, have you brought yourself before Christ in faith? Have you bowed your knee and asked the Lord to forgive you for your sin? And have you trusted in Him? Are you turning away from your sin? Have you responded to the gospel? You need to. You really need to respond to this gospel with repentance and faith. You need to trust Jesus. You need to turn away from your sin. We need to urge people to make that decision. That's not decisionism. That's a decision. And there are decisions in the Bible that we've got to make. Again, because faith is synergistic and not monergistic. Yes, faith is a gift in the sense that we talked about it earlier. That um, God, uh, by grace, causes us to be born again 
uh, to a living hope that God uh, grants by grace that we may believe, uh, and so on and so forth. These things that you read in Scripture, at the same time, it is we who believe, not God. That's John Owen, the Prince of the Puritans. As Calvinistic as you're going to get. And decisions are in the Bible. And so we, we urge people to trust in Jesus. We urge people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that we may be saved. And we don't urge them uh, apathetically, as if we don't care. We're not really invested here or there. We don't, we don't urge them um, like, well... I'm just going to urge you, but I know that it's all settled in the eternal decrees of God. We, we urge people really and, and sincerely out of love for them. Listen, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, as Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved. So long as you are breathing, if you will turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. We have promises in God's Word. And if someone says, well, what about election? What if, I know you, be, you believe in the doctrine of election. You go to Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. I know you must believe that. Like, we just tell them, listen, never mind that. Let God worry about who's elected and who's not. I don't know who's elected and who's not. Right? What, we're, what we're told in Scripture is that if you trust in yourself, if you trust in anyone else, it's not going to be good enough. It's not going to pass muster on the last day. Jesus is the only one who has lived a perfect and sinless life. And no one else but Jesus has died on the cross for sinners. He is the only Savior held out to mankind. And we have warrant in God's Word to hold out this Gospel to sinners. A command in the Gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and preach the Gospel to every creature under heaven. And we have warrant to believe that whoever, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in me I will never, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so, friend, I urge you with biblical warrant, turn to the Lord Jesus in faith and He will save you from your sin. So, distinguishing these things properly, uh, doing the dissection on the frog, as it were, uh, looking at the logical sequence and the logical causality between different aspects, different facets of our salvation, has great implications for the way that we view sanctification and the way that we view even evangelism and the way that we do sanctification and the way that we do evangelism. Some things in the Christian life are monergistic and others of our brothers and sisters in different traditions would do well to see that and to notice that. But some of the things, some of the aspects of the Christian life are synergistic and some Reformed people would do well to acknowledge that and to see that and to notice that. So we just have to properly understand what's monergistic, what does God do all by himself, and where do we have responsibility for active participation in the Christian life. And so what we see is that regeneration is something that God does all by himself, but faith and good works that uh, stem from our regenerate nature and from true saving faith uh, are things that we need to be actively engaged in and actively involved in. We see that here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we should walk in them. Paul moves in this section from talking about 
uh, what God has done monergistically in making us alive to now talking about what we need to do synergistically in cooperation with God's Holy Spirit in exercising faith and in doing good works. So again, like I said at the beginning, human beings are saved by sheer grace, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, instead of trusting in the quality of their faith or good works. That steers us clear from neonomianism and legalism. However, human beings who are truly saved will exercise faith and will do good works. That steers us clear from hyper-Calvinism and antinomianism. Human beings are saved by sheer grace, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, instead of trusting in the quality of their own faith or the quality of their good works. However, human beings who are truly saved will exercise faith and will do good works.